We are going through the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. It's one of three Old Testament wisdom books. You have Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. You will also find some wisdom literature scattered throughout the psalm, the Psalms and the Song of Solomon. Now, what you need to know about Ecclesiastes is there's this phrase that's on repeat over and over and over. And it's here on this title slide, under the sun, under the sun. This phrase, under the sun, is an interpretive key to the entire book. It's nuanced, and so it has several different meanings. One, it means life without God in view. Life without God in view. So the writer of Ecclesiastes, Koheleth, probably Solomon, looks at life and tries to find meaning and value and what's worthwhile from the perspective of if there's no God. He also does this same exercise without eternity in view. So if this life is all there is, and once we die, that's it, no more. We are annihilated. Nothingness happens after this life. No afterlife. That is also sometimes what is meant by under the sun. And sometimes under the sun means life in a broken world. Life under the curse of Genesis chapter 3. Life in a Romans 8 frustration and futility of all creation sense. And so you can tell which sense the, the writer is getting at by its context. Now tonight we will be in chapter 9, Ecclesiastes chapter 9. What we've been doing week by week is taking a chapter uh, a week and we're going through the entire book. There's 12 chapters and so this is chapter 9. Chapter 9 uh, begins on a dark note of death ends on kind of a dark note of wisdom versus folly, but in the middle, we find some glorious exhortation to enjoy life as God's people. And so let's dig in together verse by verse, 17 verses in all. We'll start with verse 1 of chapter 9. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all. How the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. And you'll see in wisdom literature, sometimes it's kind of cryptic. Like what, what exactly is being said here? And so we have here, uh, I laid it all to heart. What does that mean? Well, he means all that he has written before, the first eight chapters. But I think specifically what came right before this in chapter 8, verse 17. This is the last verse of chapter 8. What would, would have followed without no chapter divisions and no verse numbers in the original letter, the original book. Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. What this means is that God is at work in the world. However, God's work is often shrouded in fog to us. It's a mystery to us. We cannot understand what God is up to in the world. And sometimes we are tempted to watch the news or look at our Twitter feed or look at Facebook and say, it's as if God does not even exist, as bad as the world is. If God was all-powerful and if God was loving, then there wouldn't be so much evil and suffering in the world. That's how the argument goes. Meanwhile, the question is, could God be so wise and so powerful and so with his knowledge extending beyond what we creatures all combined could imagine, that he knows that every bad thing that is happening in the world, and specifically every bad thing that is happening in your life, is flowing to some ultimate good end. It's been said like this, if God is painting some beautiful portrait with history for his glory, when we look back on history, the history of the earth, and it's one beautiful painting for his glory, 
God needs both the highlights and the dark shadows to make a full picture. And if any of you are painters, you know that you need shadows and variations of shadows to create depth and to create a, a, a full lifelike picture. And you also need highlights to show lighting and to show depth as well. And so this is God using human history and the bad and good things in your life to paint a beautiful picture for his glory. And for us to try to find out what he's up to every day or in the world or by watching the news or reading headlines, it is futile. You can't find it out. This is the comfort we get from Deuteronomy 29, 29. It says this, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the revealed things belong to us and to our children forever. See, God doesn't expect you to find out what he's up to in secret. We could call this his secret sovereign will. God is at work in the world, and he is all-powerful with no limitations. No one can say to him, what are you doing or what have you done? No one. And God doesn't expect you, he doesn't put it on you to find out what his secret sovereign will is. That's a relief. Rather, it's more like a stream of flowing water and you find yourself being taken by the current. This is God's will. His secret sovereign will. You're in it. You can't help but be in it. It's happening to you. And when we try to find out what God is secretly up to in the world by reading current events or by seeking special revelation, Koheleth here or Solomon says, it's futile. He cannot find it out. And so my, my encouragement to you is you can rest in God's sovereignty. And the revealed things would be whatever he has clearly spelled out in his word. 66 books of clarity for you and I. That's what we should focus on. That's what we should live by. That's what we should bank on. Now, in light of verse eight, uh, 8, chapter 8, verse 17, we have 9-1. But all this I laid to heart, that man can't find out what God's up to. Examining it all. How the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Okay, so, so righteous are people who are right with God. Maybe not righteous as in right standing with God by their deeds. That's never uh, what righteous means if someone is truly righteous because we can't accredit ourselves to God by our good works. There was only one righteous and that is Jesus Christ and he is the great substitute for our unrighteousness righteous in our place. So this righteous is the sense of right with God, but not right because you have earned favor by your good doing. It's never the sense of righteousness. And the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Now we could go to many different places here, but the, the Proverbs, specifically in chapter 16, shows this over and over. Man in his heart plans his course but his steps are directed by the Lord, basically. Okay? Uh, man opens his mouth, but the reply is from the Lord. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. The lot being like Old Testament dice, ways of deciding right or left, yes or no, go or, or stay. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And so all of our deeds, if we are on God's side, if you will, right with God, it is all connected to God's purposes. Now, this next portion of verse 1, whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. Now, this is a, a bit harder to interpret. What this probably means is bad things happen to us who are righteous and wise and in God's hand, and good things happen. And we can't tell by experience if God is loving us or hating us because sometimes it feels like he's hating us. But we know from the word that God loves his own and God has special favor and grace for his own. And even the bad things that happen, and they do happen to Christians, 
ultimately are for their good in the end. In the end. But just from looking at it at face value, you can't experientially tell. Is this God's love or hate? Man doesn't know. Both are before him. Let's move on here to verses 2 to 3. It is the same for all. Since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked. So now there's, there's a sameness for both good people and bad people. Not good as in I'm good so God declares me right with him. But rather good as in people who do good outwardly speaking and people who do evil outwardly speaking. So from a man perspective, a human perspective, we can line up people who are rapists and murderers and thieves and we can put them next to other human beings who pay their taxes, who you know, are generally decent human beings who do not harm or seek harm for anyone else. Okay, So on a human level here, there are good and there are bad people. But the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice. Clean and unclean in the Old Testament um, sense, there was laws that enabled you to come into the temple and worship, and there were laws that kept you away from the temple to worship. There were lifestyles that made you unclean, and there were diseases that made you unclean. There were some people who went in to sacrifice in order to admit their sin and to seek a sacrifice for punishment for their sins so that it would not fall on them. And then there were those who just disregarded sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. What's that event? We know. It's death. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. Now, this is a dark portion of Ecclesiastes, but it's reality. This is reality, friends. It's that you could be outwardly good and doing good things, and bad comes for you, humanly speaking. You get cancer. You, you lose your job. Your spouse cheats on you. Your kids go astray, etc. There is no rhyme or reason, seemingly, that if I live a good life, according to God's will, He is then obligated to bless me with only good. That is a wrong view of God. And if you have that view of God, you are likely to abandon Him. You cannot put God in your debt by you living a certain way or not living a certain way. In addition, people who live like hell seemingly get blessed and get wealthy and get respect and have a long life. And we say, what, what is going on? Life doesn't work the way that we feel it should work or think it should work. Why? Because we live in a broken, frustrated world. Romans 8 says it like this. God has subjected the entire creation to futility or frustration in hope that it will one day be liberated. Okay, so we're not going to leave on this dark note, but I want us to look at verse 3 for just a moment. Let's take a Christian New Testament perspective of verse 3 here. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. So the writer here, Solomon, sees this as evil. He's like, whether they're good or bad, whether they sacrifice or don't, whether they take oaths or not, the same thing happens to them. This is, this is not good, he says. And then, in addition, he says, the hearts of the children of men are full of evil. Now you might say, that's a little, that's a little harsh, that's a little extreme. Is that hyperbole? It is not. Because the New Testament says the same thing in Romans chapter 3. I'll paraphrase for you. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is no one who does good. There's none who seek after God. They all have turned away. All have gone astray. The poison of asps or vipers is under their lips. Their throat is an open grave. That's what 
the declaration of God is over the human heart, is that we are not good. Jesus says it like this, friends. He says, what father among you, if his son asks for bread, would give him a snake or a stone? I'm sorry. And, and, and what father among you who is, is a good father, if his son asked for a fish, would give him a serpent? If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts or give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? You see, God looks at us and He sees through our facade, through our Facebook image, through our Instagram perfection, and He looks into your heart and He sees that you are not a good person. You are wicked. I am wicked. What shall we do to remedy this? Well, God does what we cannot do. This is an Old Testament prophet, Ezekiel. And this little portion of Scripture, 26, 27 of Ezekiel 36, is a promise of what God will do upon the resurrection of Jesus, His ascension, and His sending of the Holy Spirit. He says, I will give you a new heart. This is good news, friends, because look at the end here. The hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. But, but the promise here is, I will give you a new heart. That heart of madness and evil, I will take out. And I will give you a new spirit, and I will, I will put it within you. And I will remove that old heart, your heart of stone, from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. The stone image is hard towards God. The flesh image is of life. It's alive. Stones are not alive. Hearts are alive. They beat and pump and they, they send life-giving blood to every part of your body. Verse 27, and I will put my spirit within you. Look at the capital S there. That's the Holy Spirit. I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes or ways and be careful to obey all my rules. You see, friends, this is the promise for us who live post-resurrection, ascension, and the sending of this one who is, in verse 27, the Spirit. So what is for us is not that old wicked heart we don't live there. No, we live with a new heart that is soft towards God, that is not full of evil, that is not full and, and hell-bent on destruction and destroying other people. No, rather, it is able by the Holy Spirit to walk in God's statutes. Look, to obey His rules. But how? Not on your own strength. Not on your own strength. You can't do this, friends. That's why verse 27 says, I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you. I will be the cause of this. I will be the cause of you walking in my ways. The bad news is for those who don't have a new heart, who don't have a new spirit, who don't have the Holy Spirit, all they have is their own strength, which the Bible calls flesh. That's all they have. And though in the flesh there are some people who are better than other people if we want to put people on a scale of good and bad, but no one is able to, by their good works, make themselves right with God. God has to do a supernatural, miraculous work on you, and it's called the new birth, according to John chapter 3, verse 3. This is the picture. It's the taking out of your old stony heart and being given a new one, being given a new spirit and given the Holy Spirit. So that's good news for us, friends. We don't have to own that wicked, full of evil heart as Christians. And some of you tonight may not be Christian. You're like, I've, I've never heard of this. And in fact, frankly, this is kind of offensive. I didn't come here to be told how bad I was. I didn't come here for you to tell me I'm wicked. I didn't come for, here for you to tell me that God is not pleased with me and that my throat's an open grave and I have snake venom under my lips. What are you talking about? This is the Bible's declaration over you and me. And it would be good of you to own it and to realize that with our own efforts, with our own energies, we cannot 
please God. The Bible has a way of being very blunt and direct and helpfully offensive. Helpfully offensive. Because the offense should lead you to turn from your own efforts, from your own energies, from your own ways and your own wisdom to God and His ways and His wisdom and His salvation. Verse 4 of chapter 9. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. Okay, so now he's introducing hope. So joined with the living, guess who's joined with the living in here? All of us. We have hope. Why? For a living dog is better than a dead lion. That's strange. It's only strange because you have multiple pets and you snuggle with your pet and take selfies with your pet and feed your pet, you know, $150 bags of food. That's why this is strange. But back when this was written, dogs were dirty, pack hunting, you know, dead body eating animals. I saw this type of flavor of dog when I went to the Dominican Republic a few years ago to, to do some church planting efforts. And, and the dogs that would roam up to people, they would be like, ha, and they'd kick at them and shoo them away because if not, you might have a fight on your hand. So in this view of the Old Testament and even the New Testament, dogs are not seen as fluffy children, fur babies, okay? No, we Americans have made them, you know, just a little lower than children. And for some of us, a little higher than children. <laughs> we got clothes for them. You know, they have their own Facebook page. They have their own Instagram page. Okay. So the idea here is a, a, a living dog, which was not a respected animal when this was written, is better than a dead lion. Lions were seen as courageous, king of the jungle, the best of the beasts. In other words, to be alive and to be a low-class animal is better than a dead high-class animal. That's what's being said here. Why? For the living know that they will die. They're conscious. They understand what's happening, and they can look forward into the future, maybe not morbidly, but maybe with some wisdom, and know that they are mortal. You remember that the writer of Ecclesiastes has already told us it's better, better to be in a house of mourning than a house of feasting. It's better to face tragedy because you will consider and think deeply when things are not good. Where if every day is a party, you might be tempted to not think deeply and not consider eternal things. And so here, the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward. The reward here is seen as living. For the memory of them is forgotten. Verse 6, their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. There's no passion. There's no emotions. There's nothing for them to do because they are, they're gone. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. There's our phrase. Now, the perspective here is one not of an afterlife, right? Because clearly he's saying their love, they can't love anymore, they can't hate anymore, they can't envy anymore, They're, they've perished. And, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Now, this could simply mean that they can't come back once they've died. But there is no hope here of an afterlife. And you see, friends, for us, we know that the afterlife is our hope. That one day, not only will we who belong to Jesus be resurrected with him, with brand new physical bodies able to love and able to eat and able to do art and, and express, but rather, or, or sorry, in addition, we will be in a new earth, a new created universe without sin and without the curse. And so for us, we have this hope of a new resurrection coming for us. But here, the writer is saying, it's better to be alive than to be dead. And so in light of being alive versus being dead, he commends us. Go, it's a command. Eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. 
Let your garments be always white and let not your oil be lacking on your head. Okay, so this verse is for God's people. Okay, if you are God's people tonight through Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, you're placing your faith in him instead of yourself, this is for you. What should we as Christians do until we await that, or while we await that great resurrection? We should eat our meals with joy. Okay? How many of you know the difference between eating and enjoying and glorifying God in your eating or just eating to survive? Like, I just have to eat because if I don't, I'll die. This is you eating and drinking with a merry heart. This is God commending gladness and celebration with food and with wine. Now, we know from the rest of the scriptures, he's not commending drunkenness. And even in chapter 2, he searched out whether excessive drink would make one happy and make fulfillment. And he says it's vain, vanity. So he's not talking about drunkenness, rather. He's talking about enjoying quality good food and quality good drink. He's like, every now and then, spend six bucks at Starbucks and don't feel guilty. Like, enjoy the life that God has given you. Why? Because he has already approved what you do. This is pointing forward to, if you will, the declaration over Jesus Christ by his father, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Friends, we in Jesus, united to him, what's true of him is true of us. We have that declaration over us, that in Jesus, we are well-pleasing to the Father because of our union with him. And so God is approving of us. He wants us to live the life he has given us while we have uh, life in us to live it for his glory and to the full. God is not commending here, you be sad and somber and depressed until the resurrection comes. Rather, he's saying, while you have life, enjoy this life that God has given you. Now, this verse 8 is, is ancient, <clears throat> and it can mean two things. Let your garments be always white. Okay, the white garments were worn to feasts and to festivals and to parties. But in addition, in a hot, arid sunny, beating down on you, sunny climate, what would a white garment do for you? Like, I, I went fishing in um, South Carolina. I'm not a big fisherman, but I was invited to go out into the ocean and fish. And they were like, look, you need, you need to put on a long sleeve shirt. It needs to be white, and you need to get one of those crazy hats that, like, that brim out. Because you're going to die if you don't, <laughs> because the sun is just going to bake you alive. But what white does is it deflects the sunlight, where if you were to go out with a black shirt on, it would absorb the sunlight and, and bake you. Okay, so this is the idea of um, being comfortable. Look at the second part, and let not your oil be lacking on your head. Now, now we don't put oil on our heads, but we do put Shampoo and conditioner, don't we? Same thing. See, back in the day, you, the sun would just dry out your head and your skin, but oil would keep it nice and moist and from flaking and from burning. And so this would have probably been perfumed oil like your shampoo or like your conditioner. And so he's saying, let not the oil for your head be lacking. Let it always be there for you. The good things of life so that you're enjoying life to the full. That's the picture here. So God is commending for us, friends, who are in Christ, enjoyment of the life you have. Let me say this real quick, and then we'll move on. Some of us cannot enjoy the life that God has given us because we have a different vision for the good life other than the one that is our life. You know what I'm talking about. You're like, if only this, and you have this thing in your mind, if this happens, or if I could just get this, or if I could just be in this place at this time with this much money, and then I'll be happy. Friends, listen, that is a trap and a trick from hell, because when you get there, if you ever get there, 
the only thing that will be there for you is another, if I only had this or that or I was in this position, or with this person, or if this attitude changed, and so on and so forth. Friends, rather, you need to take the now that you have and live it to the full, because who knows if tomorrow you will even be here. And so why not take the life and the place that God has given you right now, Right now, right here and now, the very place God has you, with the bank account that God has you, in the house that God has you, with the spouse that God has you, or the non-spouse that God doesn't have you with, and the kids that you have versus the kids you don't have, or without kids and wanting them, etc. And enjoy the life that God has given you in this season, knowing that there are seasons. And the seasons will come and the seasons will go. And if God is in control, this is the season he has for you right now. Enjoy it. Enjoy him. Next, he goes to marriage. Enjoy, verse 9, life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life. I love that. Your life's vain. You might as well just enjoy your wife. (laughs) Vain means mist vapor, breath. It's the same as vanity. So it means short. It means it's going to be gone. It's here today, but it's gone tomorrow. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life, short life, mist, breath, vapor life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Now, this is from from the Bible, clearly, right? But it's also from a biblical perspective. And in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, it's not good that Adam is alone, right? There was no helper fit for him. There was not one like him as all the animals were paraded before him and he was naming them. There was not one like him. So God did what? He made him fall asleep, He pulled out a rib, and he fashioned one like him and not like him. And then God walks Eve down the aisle and performs the first wedding. He hands Eve over to Adam, and Adam sings a love song to her. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. So this is from that perspective. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love, because God made women for men as wives originally in the beginning. Because the command to Adam was be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. And you can't do that by yourself, biologically speaking. Right? So, so God couldn't do what, what, or I'm sorry, Adam couldn't do what God had told him to do because he didn't have a helper. And that word helper also can be translated strength. Adam wasn't strong enough to do what God had given him to do. So he needed more strength, and that's where the woman came in. She's his strength. She's his reinforcements. Now, that being said, I want to give you very quickly a few verses on God's view of marriage. Okay? Now, for you single friends here, okay, some of you may be single and loving it, and that's fantastic. The Bible does not say that if you're single, you're a second-class citizen or Christian. Okay? Paul himself, who wrote 13 of the 27 letters of the New Testament, was single. Jesus Christ, the whole complete man. If there ever was a complete whole man, it was Jesus Christ. He was single. So don't let Satan lie to you single people and say, unless I have a spouse, I'm not yet human, or I'm lesser than, or I'm... No, married people are above. No, that's not the case. And if you've read Corinthians, you know that Paul says, I wish as all were like me. Because married people know a little bit about trouble. And all the married people are going, yep, I know all about that. And he says, I want to spare you that. And then he says, I, as the Lord's servant being single, am free to go here when I want, to do this when I want. I'm not accountable or tied down, and I'm free to serve the Lord. Now, you who are married and you who are with children, you know that you're not as free as you were when you were single. And so you are able to serve the Lord in a way that is more unique and maybe more beautiful, maybe, 
than those of us who are married, maybe. And so don't, don't let the exhortations and the glorification of marriage in the Bible discourage you single people, okay? Because singleness is a gift from God, too. And it has its season of unique glory that God can use to advance his kingdom. That's the way you should see it. Okay, the normal state for humans, male and female, is that they would be married. Okay, this is God's creation. So, Proverbs 8.22 says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Okay, so if you have found a wife, gentlemen, you have found favor from the Lord. That doesn't mean that, gentlemen, if you have not found a wife, you have not found the Lord's favor. It's simply stating that if you found a wife, that's God's gift to you and his favor is upon you. It's not saying the opposite is also true. Okay, now this one is a little, a little bit PG-13, maybe R-rated, but it's the Bible. So we shouldn't be afraid to read it publicly and think about it. Proverbs 5, 15 to 19 is talking about love within marriage being exclusive and beautiful to God because he designed it. Drink water from your own cistern. A cistern would be like a well. Flowing water from your own well. Now, you can imagine what that means in the context of marital love. I'm not going to go there. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer or doe, a a, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. So verse 19 is a commendation of marital love. And God's saying, I made it. I made it to be good and pleasurable, and when it is good and pleasurable within marriage, I am glorified. I'm glorified because that's my design. Verses 15 down to 18 is an exhortation for you not to be immoral sexually and spread what God has given you in your sexuality around. Don't do it. It's for your spouse alone. And that goes for single people as well. Whether you're married or not married, God has made sexuality as glorious and beautiful, but it's to be enjoyed and expressed within a fence. And inside that border, it is beautiful and good and safe and glorious. And outside of that fence, it's an agent of destruction. And many have been destroyed by it. Hebrews 13, 4, last one. Let marriage be held in honor among all. So the writer to the, to the Hebrews is saying, marriage, the way we should view it, it should be held in honor by all Christians, all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Now, the, the second part of Hebrews 13, 4 is a warning. Okay? He's saying God will judge the sexually immoral, and he will. He's going to. Even if it hasn't come yet, it is to come. No one gets away with anything. But being that the marriage bed should be undefiled, when it's exercised within its godly limits, it is not defiled. I think that's a beautiful thing. In other words, within marriage, have at it, and it's glorious to God, and there is no defiling sexuality within marriage. Okay, I've made you uncomfortable enough, so let's move on. (laughs) Let's move on. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. All the days of your vain, remember that means quick, short life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. He's commending, since it is better to be alive than dead, remember dead dog, or I'm sorry, alive dog, dead lion, Enjoy your wife. Wife, enjoy your husband. This is God's gift to you. Okay? And if you're not enjoying the, the wife or the husband that God has given you, you need to work on that so that you can enjoy the husband or wife God has given you. Why stay in an unhappy marriage without working to make it happy, friends? 
And if you're a Christian, you know and are united to the God of redemption who takes broken things and fixes them. He takes ugly things and makes them beautiful. He takes the broken down and he fixes it up and restores it as new. There is hope for all of you. Verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Sheol is the place of the dead, the place where the dead reside. In other words, when you die, you, you, there, there's no work for you to do. There's no thinking. There's no knowledge or, you know, lis listening to audiobooks or podcasts or reading books. There's no wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. It's a reminder. You're going here. So while you're here, while you're here, enjoy your wine. Enjoy your food. Enjoy your marriage. Enjoy thought and work and knowledge and wisdom while it's available because soon it won't be. That's the warning. Now again, Remember, Ecclesiastes is taking a view sometimes of there is no afterlife. There is no beyond the grave. What we know as Christians is knowledge is going to continue throughout eternity. And as I've said before, I, I can't imagine the billions of galaxies out there, each themselves containing billions of planets and stars, not being our future playground. And what elements are out there that will just revolutionize human existence for eternity. A new planet, new elements that will enable us to go further into the depths of space to find more. And I think that's what we'll be doing forever. God has limited us on this life to not even be able to get past the moon. I mean, yeah, we could send satellites and, um, you know, robots. But as far as people, there's no colony on Mars yet. Maybe soon. But the idea is... Work now, think now, gain knowledge now, walk in wisdom now. Now this is the hope we have as Christians. It is New Testament to believers. Whatever you do, work heartily with zeal, with enthusiasm, not lazily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. This is an exhortation to the Colossians and specifically to bond servants or workers. But it's extended to us that whatever we have to do, that God has given us to do, we should imagine ourselves doing it for God because he is going to reward us for how we spent our lives and how we worked for him. And that universe to come the resurrected universe, is our inheritance. It's our inheritance. <clears throat> Verses 11 and 12. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. So under the sun, meaning that in this cursed existence we have now, what you would think should happen logically often does not happen. You would think that the swift would win the race. You would think that the battle would be won by the strong. You would think that those who are wise would be able to attain food and be able to keep fed. You would think that the intelligent would be the most rich. But that's not the way it is. Because the world is broken. Broken. And so coming to terms that we are in a broken world would help you gain a heart of wisdom. Rather than cursing God for how everything's upside down, understand that we are in a cursed existence and the time is coming where, when everything will be flipped right side up. Everything will be flipped right side up. Time and chance happen to them all. Happen to the swift, the strong, the wise, the intelligent. What is time? Well, I think that's 
explained in verse 12. But chance means what's seemingly random. Diagnosis of cancer, and within weeks you're dead. Chance. What's the chances of that? He was healthy. He ate salads. He ran. A car crash on the way home. What's the chances of that? I mean, they had such a promising future ahead of them, and so on and so forth. You, you guys know. You watch the news like I do. And so this is the time that comes for all that is not expected. For man does not know his time. Time of trouble. That's what it means. Fish that are taken in an evil net. Birds that are caught in a snare. The children of man, that's us, are snared at an evil time. What does that mean? It suddenly falls upon them. You're not expecting it. Boom, it just happens. I was not expecting that. That's the evil time. It just comes upon you unexpectedly, unwanted, unbidden. The evil time comes. Chance, supposedly. Now, Romans eleven thirty three to 36 talks about this unscrutableness of God. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How unscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? Who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. This is the idea, friends, that God is wise beyond your imagination. And though to us it looks like chance is happening, randomness is happening, it looks like we are suddenly caught in a snare, these verses are showing us that God's judgment and His ways can't be pulled apart by human understanding. And no one, even by prayer, can give Him counsel. God, you should do this. God, I think this is what you should do in this situation not how prayer works. Who has given a gift to him, to God, that he might be repaid? No one can put God in their debt. Why? Because from him, through him, and back to him are all things, unqualified all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. I'll burn through these last two slides and we're done. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun. And it seemed great to me. So I, I've seen this thing happen, and it seemed great to me. So I pondered it, I thought about it, and I want to tell you about it. There was a little city with a few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words not heard. Okay? This is a bit cryptic, but here's what's happening here. There's a small kingdom, and a larger kingdom is going to come and take it over. There is an insignificant, poor, unrespected man who has wisdom enough to deliver the city. And if his wisdom was taken into account, the city would have been saved. But instead, his wisdom was not taken into account, and we could tell this by 16. Though the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. No one remembers the poor man. Okay? This is the idea that though wisdom is offered, people don't take it, and often one's status doesn't allow us to receive from them because we don't think them able to tell us anything. Verse 17 and 18, last two verses of the chapter. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler. In other words, Though wisdom is shouted quietly and not loudly, and the shouting of a ruler might be heard because of his shouting and because of his status, you're better to go with the wise. Now, just think about this in our day. How many people consider the Bible in their daily lives? Yet, the wisdom of God is on display for all to live by, and the person of wisdom, one greater than Solomon is here, Jesus, is available for people. 
And it's like it's whispered because no attention is given to God's word or to God's ways or to God himself. So, so there's a whisper that happens every Sunday across the United States and across the world. A whisper of wisdom goes out. And yet, on media, on movies, on music, folly is loudly shouted. And people pay attention to it and live their lives by it. Our exhortation is, listen to the wise even if it's heard in quiet. Verse 18 says, wisdom is better than weapons of war. In other words, remember the, the, wise, the wise poor man? You can, by wisdom, do more than you can with weapons of war. But then he says, one sinner can destroy much good. Though wisdom is beneficial, the sins of one can destroy much wisdom. And isn't this our story? The sins of one destroyed not just much good, but all the good. This is the story of Adam. He was told, don't eat from that tree. In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. He ate and brought down the universe. Now, this is the beautiful reversal, though. Friends, one non-sinner is able, by his not sinning and his willing to give himself up as a substitute, can bring much good and much glory and much restoration, and much health. This is our story. By the sin of one man, Romans 5 says, the entire universe was brought down, and we are all headed to hell by choice and by nature. But the other man, the second Adam, who lived perfectly, who never disobeyed, even once, who subjected himself to the Father's will 100% of the time, went to the cross, the Roman execution uh, tool, for you and for me if we will but trust in him. And our trusting in him allows our sins to be forgiven. It allows our hope to rise to new levels beyond what is imagined. And the hope offered for those who have trusted in Christ is that eternity of joy and ever-increasing bliss awaits us in the presence of God himself. So though death is guaranteed, and though chance seems to be ruling in our day, and though under the sun nothing is predictable, friends, the one hope and anchor for our soul is that Jesus Christ has won the victory for us. Will you give yourself over to him tonight, maybe for the first time? Would you give yourself over to him again, maybe for the 50th or 100th time? You cannot go wrong by dedicating yourself holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, over to him.